Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett welcomes an NFL coaching legend and soon to be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Dick Vermeil. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by an NFL coaching legend. He's a Rose Bowl champ, a Super Bowl champ, and this year he's going into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, Dick Vermeil. Coach, thanks for coming on the program. Hey, my pleasure. Always great to be connected with the Boone family. Coach, I'll tell you this. Because of our Philly ties, I'm going to let this go. You know, me growing up there in the in the 70s, you being the, the coach of the Eagles. I, I normally don't allow Bruins on my – being an SC guy, I don't let Bruins come on my show. But but I, I figured this time there's an exception. Please, yeah, please allow it, okay? And I have <laughs> coaches as long as I don't have to coach against them, okay? That's right. All right, Uh Dick Vermeil, as a child, uh, I want to hear all about Calistoga, California. You're born. Um, tell me about your family. Tell me about a young Dick Vermeil and and where this where this coaching thing started. Was it an early age or what kind of kid were you? Well, Brent, you know I grew up in a town of eighteen hundred people. My dad had a garage right beside the house, about two first downs away. Okay, was my great grandfather on the Italian side of my family's. Second home. He was very successful in San Francisco. Got a bold do I carry. One of the original owners of the Bank of Italy that became the Bank of America. And he was making money, so he brought property in the Napa Valley on into Calistoga because it reminded him of the Tuscany region where he grew up. And fortunately, my dad loved it and ended up uh, leaving high school and going to Calistoga. And eventually meeting my mother there and marrying. And uh, I was born in Gatabalde, I carries home there in Calistoga, which is still there. It's now a, uh, it's a, a doctor outpatient uh, facility there on Washington Street next to the Catholic Church. So that's where it all started. Calistoga, uh, California, Napa Valley, wine country. Better today than it was in the old days. I grew up helping Grandfather Vermeil make our Vermeil wines and. Uh, that's why I still have an interest in it. But anyway, that's how it all started. And fortunately for me, Brent, a high school coach came to Calistoga High School, 130 kids in school, on his first head coaching job. Bill Wood, Wilbur Wood, came out of College of Pacific, now University of Pacific, and became the head football coach my senior year. And he really uh, sort of inspired me, you know. And for, he was the first guy that ever told me, you know, if you wanted to, you could play college football. Of course, you haven't done anything in the classroom. You're not, you weren't planning on going to college. You'll have to go to junior college. But if you do, you can play. And that really excited me. So I, I went on that path, went to junior college, Napa Community College, and played there and went, walked on at San Jose State and then earned a scholarship. And, but it was Bill Wood. And then, fortunately for me, uh, Dr. Robert Bronson was the head football coach at San Jose State, and for some reason or another, he saw things in me that I didn't see myself in, within me and uh, kept talking to me about it, and he, he and sort of moved my expectations. And 
my whole value system was what I might end up being able to do in football. So that's, that's how it all got started. As a kid, was it always football? Do you, do you have any other sports you like? you have a favorite team, favorite players? Oh, you know, you know, in, in high school with the 130 kids, you play football, baseball, ball, and basketball. You, you play them all. And ran yeah. track. I ran track. I held the quarter-mile school record for many, many years, 54 flat, I think it was. Not very fast. But in, in those days, it was okay. But anyway, you did everything. But then when I went on to college, my in junior college, I – played football and ran track. I was a quarter miler. And then when I went to San Jose State, walked on there, I just played football and uh, went into physical education and health minor, got my general secondary and master's degree and went on into high school coaching. Yeah, you went to San Jose State, you graduated in 59 and uh, 60. You're the head coach of Hillsdale High. You you coached there for three years and you know, it's always interesting to me, the, the guys that go into coaching really early. I mean, when you when you're that when you're at uh, San Jose State, what's going I, I mean, you go there, you're playing football, you're thinking about what you're going to do in your future. When did it pop in your head is this is the route I want to go? I want to teach people. I want to be a head coach. Or did that just evolve as time went on? You know, it evolved a little bit. Brett. What I found out is what I really loved about what I was doing was coaching football. So each time I had an opportunity to move up the ladder in regard to teach less and coach more football, not physical education. I taught freshman English my first year out with my master's degree and civics and these kind of things. And I was a head track coach. I was a head swimming coach, which I really enjoyed. But I, you know, my passion was football. And each year uh, it, it kept growing on me. It just, it sort of overpowered me, believe it or not. And that's, that's why every time I had an opportunity to move, I, I accepted the opportunity. You know, that's back in the day. I remember when I was in high school, all my coaches, whatever sport I was playing, they were always my teachers, too. So it, it, it was like teacher and then coach on the side. But I would see him on campus. I had to mind my P's and Q's because I'm like, oh, I got I got practice today. If he sees me, you know, skipping yeah, class, right. I'm gonna, it doesn't right. seem like it's really like that anymore. But I, I all my coaches in high school, they were always like my English teacher, or my math teacher or something. And I don't see that it's that way in 2022. Maybe I'm missing the boat. Uh, but but. That was interesting to me. And you said you, you came back and you were teaching class. You were coaching multiple teams. Um, yeah. 64, you go to Napa Junior College, step up from high school, obviously. And, uh, yeah. you know, that's that's going to roll into to 1965 where you go to Stanford as an assistant coach. Right. I've got a couple questions for you. The, uh, the verbiage uh, when I was doing my research. Assistant coach, what is that? <laughs> Well, my first year at Stanford, I was the freshman football coach. I was the head football coach of the freshman team. And, okay. You know, it was, a, it was a wonderful experience. We had maybe the best freshman team in the history of the school, not because I was coaching them. It happened to be a great recruiting year. John Rawson, God bless him, his real strength was working from the top down in an organization. I mean, he got the president behind the football program. He got the director of admissions behind the football program. Graham, everybody in the athletic department was behind the football program, and we really had a great recruiting class. A number of them went on in to play in the NFL, and the others went on to be doctors and lawyers and India chiefs, you know. But it really, it was just, he was really good at that. And I learned so much 
from him uh, with his example of doing that. But, uh, you know, the baseball team, as your dad would know, uh, was very good at that time and uh, went on to Mark Marcus coach the baseball team that was my fresh one of my freshman players on my football team from Stang High School in Stockton. So, you know, if there are no negatives when you work at Stanford University. You know, you get the best kids in the country and, you know, you're around bright, bright people and, uh, and the campus is probably second to none in regard to the environment. Uh, wonderful, wonderful place. Yeah, Sunken Diamond. I remember that Mark Marcus when I was at, oh, at yeah. USC. Yeah, Mark Marcus was their coach. Uh, Dad tells me about him. You know, he was, he was there, I think, the first baseman on the baseball team. And yeah, uh, I he think he's – he's. He, go ahead. Yeah, he, yeah, he played with your dad. Yeah, they were they were on the same team. They were on the same team. And, you know, I got to I got to hear. I was giving you a hard time about the Bruin connection, but I got to listen to my dad, Dick. I, I, you know, he goes on and on. when the family gets together and we got SC, my son just graduated from Princeton. So he kind of poo poos us, uh, all of us. You know, he, even he tries to one up dad. But I got to hear those Stanford stories. <laughs> and when I was a kid. Playing, I would hear about that Stanford all the time, and, and I couldn't stand Stanford. At that particular time, uh, we were the Pac-6, and they were really good, and they were beating up on us the, the three years I was at SC. So I didn't I, I didn't want to hear about Stanford. But to this day, you know, the big game, uh, Dad will always come yeah. to me, hey, you got to watch the big game? I said, why do I care about the big game? I didn't go there. But uh, it's interesting how we stick to our alma maters. 1969. Uh, you make the transition to to go to the NFL with the Rams. And another real interesting note I came across is you're the first ever special teams coach. And I, I think nowadays we take it for granted. Of course, they're special team coaches. But back then, you were the first. And my question to that is, before you were named the special assistant, who, who who's in charge of the special teams before they actually made it a position? Well, Brent, they divided the responsibilities up amongst the coaching staff, okay? And they and then they didn't work on them until Friday and Saturday, the day before the Sunday game. And, you know, all your offensive coaches, defensive coaches, they all had a contribution to make to the special teams in the organization and preparation. And George lost a very, very critical game the year before, 1968, a playoff game, I think it was, because a kickoff return was returned for a touchdown. And at the end of the season after that, he asked his entire staff to go through every kickoff return that they defense during the, you know, at that time, 14 game season. Well, they did. And they found out that the two guys that missed the tackle that allowed the touchdown to score never made a tackle in 14 games, but nobody was grading them. So he said, you know, I have to hire somebody that does nothing but focus on special teams. And fortunately for me, a Stanford connection, Peyton Jordan, Olympic track coach, Stanford track coach, great human being. And he and I were friends and he recommended me to George Allen when George Allen called him and asked if he knew a young college coach that might be a good special teams coach. Peyton recommended me. And I went down and interviewed for the job, and he gave it to me. So I became the special teams coach. I was there one year, and I left and went to UCLA as the offensive coordinator. Marv Levy took my job, okay? And we, Marv Levy and I were friends prior to that because he was the head coach at Cal. 
I was coaching the high school team over there, and I would go over and watch him practice all the time. He always used to joke, I thought you were on my staff. He said. <laughs> anyway, that's how it all materialized. And the other thing that happened is we went, I think, at 11 and 0 the first 11 games. We had a good football team. And uh, the special teams were major contributors to our success. And it sort of uh, it, it lit up everybody in regard to, wow, these Rams have great special teams. Well, we're the only ones spending all the time to coach them. I had a 15-minute practice period on special teams every day. I had my own 35-minute special teams or 40-minute special teams meeting every day. Well, nobody was doing that. It gave us an edge. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Thanks, Boone. Hoops fans, the latest offer from DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is too good to pass up. I'm talking between the legs, 360 windmill good. New customers can bet just $1 on any team and get $150 in free bets if they win. It's that simple. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you can still take your shot at a big payday. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Basketball Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code BOON. B-O-O-N-E, bet just $1 on any NBA team and get $150 in free bets if they win. That's promo code Boone at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. 21 plus minimum age and location requirements vary by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for full list of requirements and state-specific responsible gaming resources. Void where prohibited. Minimum $5 deposit. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Tennessee, call or text the TN red line 1-800-889-9789. In Connecticut, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. In New York, call 877-HOPENY or text HOPENY 467-369. And now back to my interview with Dick Vermeil. Going from Stanford, your, your time at Stanford, to the Rams in just that one year, what's the biggest difference you saw as a coach between the, the, the Division One, the, the uh, you know, advanced college football versus the NFL? Well, they're all bigger and faster, okay? And, you know, I actually noticed that more when I went back in after being out 14 years. But going into the NFL in 1960, I was in awe. I would have a special teams meeting, and Merlin Olson and Deacon Jones are sitting in the meeting. Jack Pardee, Maxie Bond, Roman Gabriel. I mean, uh, Roman never came to special teams meeting, but uh, I was on the field with him, you know, and it just, those kind of names just, just, I was a high school coach. I watched him play on Sunday, and I was in awe of these guys and also very nervous. Fortunately for me, Howard Snellenberger was on the same staff. Ted Marshall Howard Snellenberger, those kind of guys. But Ted had come out of the Alabama Bear Bryant program where kicking game was critical. And he helped me mature as a special teams coach. And he was coaching the wide receivers for the Rams. And he helped me. He spent a lot of individual time and guided me along and gave me the confidence to stand in front and tell Deacon Jones and Merle Olson uh, what to do, you know. So it, it was exciting. It really was and, uh, really a, an experience I will never forget. 
Man, you mentioned Roman Gabriel. I remember I had to be five years old, you know, and, and I'll get to that in, in the Philly years a little bit later. But I remember coming out and uh, during the winter, you know, Philly's winter season for the Eagles. And, you know, dad would let me pop yeah. out onto the field and kind of catch yeah. a glimpse of you guys yeah. practicing once in a while. I remember Roman Gabriel. He's kind of the he's the guy that there was a I don't know if you remember the name Gus Heffling. Who was oh, yeah, a uh, that Roman? Yeah, that Roman used to work with. He ended up hooking on with the Phillies and 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 uh, you know with Lefty and with Carlton and, and my dad doing the kung fu. But I always remember Roman Gabriel was the was the first uh, eagle that ever popped into my head. Anyway, yeah, you just he's mentioned him and and that was interesting to me. Go ahead. He's broke me out. Roman Gabriel is a man's man. You know later. I left and went as UCLA offensive coordinator. Well, then they hire Protor to come back to the Rams when George Allen leaves as the head coach. He brings me back as offensive coordinator. So now I'm coaching Roman Gabriel and running the offense. And uh, Gus Heffling was really close to Roman. And, you know, teams didn't have strength coaches in those days. No, he that was taboo. To see the program. And Gus was, you know, ahead of his time a little bit. And he had some unique principles within his training programs. And, and Roman... You know, Roman could bench press more than Deacon Jones. You know, really, those guys <laughs> didn't lift in those days. But Roman did. But uh, I always, I can remember getting after Roman one day. He throws an interception. I said, Roman, God, don't go over there and make the tackle. You got to, you know, I don't want you getting hurt. He said, Coach, I threw it. I'll make the tackle. <laughs> so that's the kind of man he was and still is. Uh, and still is. And this is an interesting part. You go from from the Rams, you're one year in 69. You go to UCLA in 70 as the offensive coordinator. You're back to the Rams for two, three years. One or two as a, a quarterback coach. One, they're, they're giving you the special teams again and the quarterback coach in 73. And then back to UCLA. So you guys, UCLA and the Rams kind of have a shuttle working with, with a young Dick Vermeil. Well, you know, fortunately for me, I made the decision to leave George Allen, a wonderful man. He really treated me with great respect and gave me a lot of responsibility. But I'd all, I was fascinated with how well coached I thought UCLA was under Tommy Prothro. And I was coaching against him at Stanford. And when I had the opportunity, I took it because I wanted to go see how they did it so well. And I learned. You know, no one organized the practice schedule better and taught the fundamentals of the game better than Tommy Prothro. And they beat a lot of teams that were physically more gifted, but not fundamentally as well coached for the techniques to play their position. And it really helped me. It helped me form a philosophy of teaching the game and coaching the position and tying it in with uh, position responsibilities game day that, than that experience. You know, so, and then, I, you know, I become offensive coordinator at, at the Rams, and I really I didn't have the experience to do that. You know, but Coach Prothrow had never been in the NFL. And, you know, I, I, th- I really say this sincerely. I think I was partially responsible for Prothrow getting fired after a couple of years. Okay. <laughs> but fortunately for me, fortunately for me, they kept me on the staff and made me the running back and special teams coach. But if I hadn't gone to UCLA as an assistant to work for Prothrow, J.D. Morgan would have never called me back and offered me the head coaching job a few, a few years later when Pepper Rogers left. So, you know, it's amazing. Decisions, decisions. Yeah. All your experience up to that point, 
you get the UCLA head coaching job, which is a big deal. You know, you live in Southern California, especially we, we understand how big of a, a position that is. You feel you were ready for it at that time, everything you'd been through? You know, Brent, when you're really young, you think you know everything. The older you get, the more you realize how little you knew, you know. And uh, But, uh, you know, I flew up. We were playing a Monday. I'm coaching the Rams, and we're playing a Monday night game. And uh, J.D. Morgan calls me Sunday morning. He says, I want to talk to you about being the head football coach, but I'm in San Francisco at the athletic director's meeting. Can you come up and talk to me? So I call Chuck Knox. God bless Chuck Knox. I, I explain to him the situation. And he says, uh, get up there and talk to him. So I get on an airplane, old Southwest Airlines, fly up there. I spend a couple hours with J.D. Morgan. He tells me I'm the head football coach. I get home that evening to go to the the Rams uh, uh, team meetings. And, you know, we're all staying in a hotel because we play the next day. And Carol says, my God, you're the head coach. What are we going to make? And I said, geez, hon, I don't know. I didn't ask. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have an agent. You talk about being naive and stupid. But any, anyway, that's how it all happened. You know, and then we go ahead and get going at UCLA. I, I, I kept seven out of the 10 assistant coaches on the staff when I took the job because I still had a, a few weeks of coaching in the NFL. And it's, one again, decision, one of the best decisions I ever made because I had the likes of Terry Donahue, okay, Dick Tomey, Billy Matthews, uh, you know, the, uh, Bob McKittrick. All these guys went on and became fine, fine coaches in the NFL. So I uh, I was very fortunate, very, very fortunate to do that. And we beat Ohio State in the Rose Bowl. And all of a sudden, I get a call from the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> and, and they flew out and met with me. And four days later, I take that job. So <laughs> it just keeps moving. That's how I met your dad. Well, actually, I met your dad at Stanford. Yeah. That's right, early. Yeah, 74, 75, you're there. Uh, by the way, as a little footnote, I got to get it in there. You were one and one against SC in those in those in those years. But as you yeah, mentioned, you, you you beat Ohio State. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, I said I was fortunate to win that one. We were minus seven in turnovers and won the game. <laughs> Just as big a rivalry then as it is now, SC UCLA. I don't think it is. You know, I, I, I don't know. You know, Southern California keeps growing in so many different sophisticated ways. I, I think sometimes they lose a little of the identity of the old rivalries and, and schools, and, which was all good, you know, which was all good for the community. People would go to work and argue about the games on Monday, you know. So I, I think they miss a little of that today. 1975, your name, Pac-8 Pac Coach of the Year. And that kind of – Coming off that Rose Bowl win, kind of set you up for, for where I you know remember you and a lot of a lot of football diehards. They remember Dick Vermeil as that Eagles coach, and, and I definitely as you know a kid growing up in Jersey, just across the, just over the Walt yeah. Whitman Bridge. Uh, I remember Dick Vermeil very, very well. Um, take me into how. Give me a snapshot of how how you went from UCLA and and how the how the Eagles job uh, you end up getting the Eagles job. Well, we, I got the job because we beat Ohio State, who was the number one team in the country, that had beaten us like 41 to 21 in the regular season. And we beat them, which is considered the biggest upset in the history of the Rose Bowl. But, and it still is. That's what put me in the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame. But anyway, uh, I think that happened. It, it startled a lot of people. It stimulated uh, Leonard Tose, the owner of the Eagles. And he had talked to George Allen, who I'd worked for. He talked to Chuck Knox. And both of those guys said to hire him, hire Vermeil. 
so he came after me and I was, you know, uh, I'm very fortunate. Yeah. I was hesitant to go initially. I, I think we spent three to four days just on the phone. And then I finally met with him on a Thursday. He had called me on a Monday. Uh, and you know, I decided to go, you know, in those days too, they weren't paying a lot of money. You know, I would, I, the year we beat a, Iowa State and the Rose Bowl is making 30000 a year. And we win the game, I get called in, I'm going to get a $2,500 raise. <laughs> today anyway, the coaches are getting what they deserve today. And I go to, I go to the Eagles for $50,000 a year. I mean, my goal, my wife's goal, uh, is we're going to make $12,000 a year someday. You know, someday we're going to make $12,000 a year. What are we going to do with all that money? And so those things all uh, – influence you but uh, you know i had been in pro football as an assistant for a while so i i i had a feel for it i liked it i liked the skilled athletes i like it's 100 percent football no academics no recruiting no summer job program no girlfriend problems it's all football and uh, so i decided to go in that direction and fortunately it, it worked out pretty good it was a struggle for a while 1976 you take over and your guys aren't very good uh but as time goes on you know leading up to 80 not not only is that that uh city of philadelphia on fire you know sports wise with all the teams um yeah you got you come in you you go four and ten in 1976 we had we had uh ron jaworski on the program a few months back and he talked about that that time in in philadelphia sports history um you start to slowly turn it around. So from 76 to 80, take me through those years, how you went from a four and 10 ball club to uh, going to the Super Bowl. Well, Brent, you know, I went there with a philosophy. I'm never going to outsmart Tom Landry or George Allen or Bud Grant or Don Chula. But at my age, being younger, I might be able to outwork them. So we went to work. You know, we didn't have a first, second, or third round pick my first or second year there, and they'd been losing. We didn't have a first or second round pick my third year. So I figured the only way we could do it is stay on the field longer, be patient with our guys, and keep trying to make them better. And a lot of guys ended up being a lot better. The good players that they already had there, the Stan Walters, the Jerry Sizemore, the Bill Berge, the John Bunning, the Frank LaMaster, these kind of Keith Crefley, these kind of guys, Randy Logan, they continued to get better as good players. Then you bring in some mid-round picks, Wilbert Montgomery, Carl Harrison, uh, uh, Charlie Johnson, these kind of guys, John Shira, you know, then Wilbert Montgomery, what was he, sixth or seventh round pick? All of a sudden, uh, with all the work we were doing, we became a very good football team. Not spectacular, but we were we played extremely hard. We played entire game. There was no loafing periods within our schedule. Believe me, those kids really knew how to play. They really knew how to work. And they formed a, a great, great camaraderie, a great relationship with each other. And they didn't want to let the other guy down. So hard work became fun for them. And it wasn't a form of punishment. It was fun for them. And they knew they were gaining on it. And it becomes infectious. Then in 1979, fourth or fifth game of the season, Pittsburgh Steelers come to town, okay? Undefeated world champions from the super year before, and we upset them. And from that time on, our guys, they, they strutted into the locker room differently. 
They they put on their uniforms differently. Yeah, I mean, they acted differently. They talked differently. They were so much more confident. And they gained a deeper belief in the value of hard work. Twelve of the guys off the original roster ended up going to the Super Bowl five years later. That's 1980. Great, great. I'm very, very, very close to all of them. Man, the 10, about 14, 15 of them still live in Philadelphia. So I get to see them, share a glass of wine, and, and go hunting with them and, and tell stories. And they get after my rear end really good all the time. <laughs> and it's really cool. I mean, in, in, you talk about that 79 season. Talk about starving, a, a city starving. It was the first playoff win since 1960. It was, you know, in 78, you, it's the first time you make the playoffs in 18 years. And and obviously it rolls into that 80 season. Man, you mentioned some some guys from my childhood. I remember Herman Edwards, you know, out on that turf. Sure, I think I, I think he used to throw, you know, play catch with me with the football when I was a little kid. But I remember... Oh, Jack LaMaster and Bergie in the middle. And and who who could yeah. forget Merrill Reese calling the games? I still hear his voice today, and it takes me back to when I'm seven years old. And I'm at I'm at yeah. Veterans Stadium watching you guys play the Cowboys, which obviously was a, a huge rivalry yeah. back then. You know, Aaron, Aaron, my brother, to this day, biggest Eagles fan out there. Maybe him and Mike yeah. Trout, uh, you know, of the Angels. But uh, – yeah. What what a what a great time to be in Philly and, and that city at that time, nineteen eighty. Take me through the eighty season and, and that leads you up to the Super Bowl. It's obviously your first Super Bowl. I always like to hear those stories about that first Super Bowl and how special it was. Well, you know, we had gained momentum, we had gained confidence, we had now getting first round picks in Jerry Robinson in nineteen seventy nine. Okay, in nineteen eighty, Roy Nell Young gaining these quality players with the players that were good when we got there and, and how much they improved in the development of the, the mid round draft choices, you know, the people, you know, that 10, 12th, they had 16 rounds in draft for a while there. So, you know, they matured and it, be, it became a very, very close knit combative group. You know, I mean, th- those kids love to play and they demonstrated, you know, if you'll remember, ask your dad, there was a door between the Phillies locker room, and the Eagles rock room, especially on Saturday, they would walk in between. You know, you'd see the great Phillies players coming in, talking. You the, the Eagles players walking in their locker room. We had a we had a Philadelphia camaraderie between the two teams. You guys are the Phillies are going to the World Series. We're going to the Super Bowl. You know, it can't happen much better. Yeah, it was pretty awesome in '80, uh, and, awesome. and 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 that NFC Championship game beating the Cowboys. I used to go. Dad would take us to all the Cowboy games. So when the Eagles played the Cowboys, that was that was our time to, to come over to the yeah. Philly side, grab a grab a soft pretzel and watch the game. I just remember those times. It was it was awesome. The Redskins, Giants, and Cowboys, but it was always the Cowboys for me. And you know, you you yeah. remember the obvious guys, Pearson and Dorsett, yeah. Staubach and Two Tall Jones, but to a to a yeah. six year old kid, that's that's what I remember. Yeah, you know, the other thing I remember about that, Brent, is one evening they're having a, you know, a World Series game in the stadium. We're preparing for Super Bowl or some playoff game at the same time. And I walk out in the stadium, look out, and Mike spits it back. Paces, pass. Yeah, I mean, it is. Humming. Wham! He hits it out of the park. <laughs> he hits it out of the park. I walk back in and I'm running my office. So I go back to my office in staff room. I said, God, uh, guys, guess what? 
Schmitty just hit one out and we're going to win this one. He said, I hope he's setting the tune for us when we, we play in the Super Bowl. Obviously, it didn't happen that way. But I'll remember that it, like it was yesterday. <laughs> 81, you go 10 and 6. Uh, 82, 3 and 6. And you end up retiring. And and I think right. the term that was used is is burnout. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's that's the term. That's I know how hard you I know how hard you worked, and you were known for that. You you wore you were a very passionate guy. You wore it on your sleeve. You cared about your players, and and you said you you were going to outwork the other team. You were going to stay on the field longer than them. When you walked away in '82, how were you feeling? Well, I would, you know, today they've got psychological terms for it. I didn't know what burnout meant. I told my wife the night before that I was having real issues, but I don't know how to explain it. I know I have to take some time off because I wasn't the football coach I wanted to be, and I knew I wasn't doing a good job. I couldn't get over a loss, and if we won one, it, it didn't mean as much because I right away started transferring my thinking to what we're going to do next week to win the next one. And, you know, it just it snowballed on me. So she said, well, why didn't you just say you're burnt out? And I said, all right, that sounds good. So that's what I said. Okay. And, of course, then I, I created a, a term used in the sports world for a while at that time. You head to the booth. And uh, yeah. you step away from 83 to 96. You go to the booth. Uh, I think you worked with CBS and ABC. How was that? Both. Different, different, uh, different animal. But maybe at the yeah. time it was something that did you enjoy it? Uh, you know, I loved it. I really did. First off, they doubled my salary. Okay, first year out, I'm working. Uh, first five years, I did ninety percent NFL games, then ten percent college bowl games. The next nine years, uh, with ABC, I did ninety percent college games and NFL playoff games. Yeah, you know, and that and. But it was fun. I was on practice fields every week. I'd always go in a couple days early. I worked with great broadcasters. Ended up with Brent Musburger for eight years. Just a wonderful man, a great broadcaster. But I also got to watch coaches coach. I sat in coaches' meetings. I sat in offensive coordinators' meetings. I sat in head coaches' meetings. And I sat in locker rooms and talked to players. And that was very educational experience. You know, I came, I finished all my years in broadcasting, and I said, the one thing I recognize in an NFL, NFL locker room and talking to the kids is they all want discipline. You know, they, they, they want everybody to be treated on the same page, on the same way. And I, I always made up my mind, if I ever went back into coaching, I'm going to make sure that my third string right guard is going to be treated with the same respect that my starting right guard is. And he's going to be disciplined the same way as a starter is disciplined. And a third string starter is at playing is going to be disciplined. Just, I just so many echoes from a locker room situation, listening to players talk. And it was, it was very good for me. And I got to watch great coaches coach. I, I think of Bill Snyder at Kansas State, maybe the finest football coach on the practice field I've ever watched coach. He, Tom Coughlin, when he was at Boston College, they beat people they had no business beating. Why? Because of excellent, excellent coaching. And Tom, of course, came on into the NFL and proved that he could do it. You know, he takes Carolina to the NFC Championship game. He takes the New York Giants to two championship games and wins two Super Bowls. You know, so I wasn't wrong in the evaluation process, you know. But I, I learned a lot from watching other coaches and then sitting in and talking to players. 
Yeah, because you take it to the booth, and, and that's what I was wondering. I'm thinking, I wonder during that time, you know, up in the booth, thinking maybe I'll do it one day again. Oh, I'm not sure. I kind of like my gig here. I like double the paycheck. Um, but obviously, it was in the back of your mind because in 97, here comes the Rams again. You were playing footsies with the Rams in UCLA and in the 70s. Now it's 1997. Uh, how'd they get you to come out of retirement? Well, the Rams, you know, I had worked for him as an assistant. I had worked for Carol Rosenblum, Georgia Rosenblum's husband, who he had passed, and then it was a Georgia uh, Frontier. And John Shaw had been president, and uh, I knew John. He had talked to me about being the head coach there prior to that year, and I knew they were sincere. And I knew if I didn't go back now, I would never go back because it would be too late. I was getting close to, you know, in, in my 60s. They don't hire 60-year-old coaches anymore. So I took it. And it was a, it was a bold move, and sometimes you got to make a bold move. It woke me up, it stimulated me. I surrounded myself with real good people, and I didn't coach the same way I did when I was the head coach at the Eagles. I knew, having been out 14 years, I couldn't be my own offensive coordinator. I couldn't coach my own quarterbacks, and I couldn't call my own plays. I had to be the head coach. I had to be the leader of the organization, and hire right people, and create an atmosphere in which players enjoy working. And regardless of how working you are and develop a relationship with the owners so they give you a chance to rebuild teams you know i took over three teams and i'm proud of this in the first two years of all three teams we won 35 percent of our games in our third year we won 73.8 percent of our games you know so the process works but you have to have good people with you and you have to have the support of the ownership that are patient with you and believe in what you're doing and fortunately for me there in kansas city my third year in kansas city we go 13-3, and three, we're 9-0, and oh, you know, before we finally get beat. We lost to Peyton Manning, okay? Actually, we lost because they got a touchdown call back. But anyway, uh, hard work never hurt anybody. The Rams was a similar, it, it, you know, just looking at the, the numbers, that Rams team that you inherit in 97, it's, it's kind of similar to those first Eagles teams. You go 5-11, and 4-12, then all of a sudden 99 hits. 13 and three. I think I know the answer to this question, but how do you go from a four and 12 team to a 13 and three team overnight? Well, you improve when you're losing, (laughs) you get better with losing and you convince your ownership and general manager and president. Yes, we are losing, but I'm going to prove to you what we're doing is the right way to do it. Just be patient. Then you bring in Marshall Falk. You're all of a sudden a lot smarter, you know, uh, Orlando Pace now, who was our first, first pick. He's growing, you know, and you get, we bring Trent Green in. God bless him. And he gets hurt. Kurt Warner takes over, you know, and and I bring Mike Marks in to help with the offense and uh, Al Saunders and John Matsko and Dana LaDuke, my third year there. And they all made first round draft choice contributions. And all the work we had done in two years prior to that was built on basis of winning in the future. Work our butts off make the players that we have that are good better and make the players that aren't supposed to be good enough, good enough to win with, you know, only nine guys off the original roster went to the Super Bowl three years later, nine players. Okay. So the process still worked. It's uh, Kurt Warner. And obviously that, that was the beginning of the greatest, greatest show on turf. Yeah. Right place, right time for him. Yes. And you know what? He, uh, if you see the movie American Underdog, you'll understand it. It's a good story. It really is. And they leave out the very first year 
in 98 that he was with us. But he takes over at 99 as the starter after Trent goes down. And he, he was spectacular. He was way beyond our expectations, maybe his own. But darn, I don't think in the history of the league there's ever been a quarterback start his first five games in the league and throw 18 touchdowns and three interceptions, have three games of 130 or more better quarterback efficiency ratings. I mean, he played lights out. Credit to Mike Martz, Jim Hannafin, my offensive coaches, Al Saunders, and uh, these kind of guys. They did a wonderful job with the offense. But the foundation of that team was built those first two years of hard work. You know, and then Marshall Falk shows up. My God, he made plays. Uh, you know, what he, he, what most, uh, he ended up being the number one offensive player in the league. Your coach of the year that year, you go to the Super Bowl, you win your you you win the Super Bowl, you beat the Titans that year. Um, interested interested to know your second time. You you had mentioned earlier you came back out of the booth, and you weren't the same guy that you were with the Eagles. You had that experience no. under your belt that that nineteen eighty Super Bowl appearance. Now you're going to your second Super Bowl. You end up winning it. Different mindset. What'd you learn from the first one? Well, it's far better to go into a Super Bowl with five Hall, Hall of Famers on one side of the line of scrimmage. <laughs> Starting they'll make you they'll make you smart, like you said. Running, yeah, the left tackles in the Hall of Fame, the, uh, the running backs in the Hall of Fame, the quarterbacks in the Hall of Fame. You know, the wide receivers in the Hall of Fame, and the other wide receivers been in the finals for the Hall of Fame three years in a row. Okay, the inside linebackers been nominated for the Hall of Fame. We took very very skilled athletes that had really developed into a good football team and the addition of Mike Martz and his brilliance and the other offensive coaches within the environment that we had created. Uh, I, I went into the game far more confident that we were the best football team. And the only way we could get beat is to lose the game, you know, and uh, you know, Hey, we almost got beat anyway, because Tennessee was a good football team. Jeff, Jeff Fisher was a good football coach, you know, so we are fortunate to win and we did it. And it, and I decided, you know, why not go out as a winner? Go home. I was going to be, what, 68 years old or something like that at the time? Go home a winner. I have a Coach of the Year trophy desk at home, and almost every coach had been at that, that era uh, had been the NFL Coach of the Year, got fired later. So I said, why put my name on that list, you know? So Yeah, you walk away again, and this where it gets really interesting. You take a year off. Yeah. All of a sudden, you're back, head coach of the of Kansas City. Why'd you come back for a second time? Well, the president of the Kansas City Chiefs, Carl Peterson, worked for me at UCLA. He worked for me at the Eagles. He had offered me the job in 1989 when he became president and general manager of the Kansas City Chiefs. And fortunately for him, he hired Marty Schottenheimer, who ought to be in the Hall of Fame. But anyway, uh, because of him, he convinced me, and he paid me well. And he paid me money. I never had an agent. You know, I never really made any money uh, coaching football at that time. But just money wasn't the reason I coached. I, hell, I, I, I gave my Super Bowl bonus from winning the game to my coaching staff. So, you know, never was my players and my coaches were the most important thing to me. All of a sudden, he comes and he offers me a nice contract to go coach for three years and work for Lamar Hunt. I said, why not? So I went back to work. And once again, it seems like the same start. It's everything's in threes for you. You go, you go six and ten, and and oh one. Now you mentioned it earlier in oh three. Uh, you're thirteen and three and building again. I think Trent Green was there at the time, if I'm not mistaken. He was. Uh, 
yeah. you end up you end up coaching there for five years after the 05 season you go 10 and six uh you end up calling it quits uh what which at the time people were thinking is this the last time or not but it ends up being uh your official re- uh retirement uh your legacy you were you know i mentioned it earlier you i always knew dick Vermeil is that emotional guy you're gonna know what he's thinking he loved his players um and and the people in philly i'm interested to see how you view it when when you know, and, and we'll talk about it a little bit later. You know, you got a big, big day coming up. But when when the when the name Dick Vermeil comes up, it seems like everybody. You know, you won the the championship uh, with the Rams, but maybe maybe it's just me. I always think of Dick Vermeil as the is that Eagle coach. Yeah, Am I, well, is is that is that how you're received? Is it always yeah. coach Coach Vermeil of the Eagles? Yeah, I am really because I live there. We have three. We brought three teenagers with us when we left UCLA to take the team. Uh, you know, eleven grandchildren born in the East there, and now I now I have two great grandchildren. So, it, it, you know, that's where home is. You know, that's where home is, and that, so. But that doesn't mean I, I don't respect the other two cities and teams just as much. It's just, uh, you know, when you stay in a city and you're around the kids you coached, and uh, uh, you know, it's 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 home. Two movies you were featured in: Invincible. American Underdogs, you mentioned earlier. Um, how accurate were both of those movies? Well, they're both good stories. That neither are documentaries. Okay, I, I appreciated them both. I, I really enjoyed American Underdog a little bit more in that they actually used some statements I gave them that I made to Kurt. So it added credibility to the whole story for me. Okay. So, but they're both well done. The American underdog, there's a lot to the story uh, prior to football that's, that everybody can identify with. And it's not glorified or manufactured. It's what happened. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's inspiring to all age groups. And I think everybody, grandparents to grandchildren can identify with the story and enjoy it. It's well done. Greg Kinnear played uh, a young Dick Vermeil. Dennis Quaid, who, who, who captured Dick Vermeil better? You know, I can't say, I, you know, I don't know what I am to other people. I just know I'm myself. My wife would have preferred to be Brad Pitt. Okay. So I don't know. Wouldn't we, wouldn't we all though? I told Billy Bean when he did Moneyball, you know, he's, he was the president of the Oakland A's. I said, of course, Billy, you're happy. You got Brad Pitt playing you. You don't even look close to Pitt. I, I would tell him that. Anyway, finally, that day's coming. You get the call. You go from the, that backup quarterback at San Jose State to getting that Hall of Fame call. Did you ever imagine it? And just take me through the day when you found out where you're headed. No, it was way beyond my expectation. Okay, way beyond my expectation. And uh, I got the call when I was getting off an airplane in San Francisco International Airport going out to work my wine business in the summer. And it was it was the Hall of Fame calling me and letting me know that I was a finalist for the Hall of Fame. And the new mechanics of putting coaches in are different than they used to be. So, you know, there was only 10 coaches going to the Hall of Fame in the last 25 years. You know, and there's only 27 guys in the Hall of Fame. And now to be the 28th, uh, it, it just it just it almost knocked me off my feet, you know. And Carol was with me. And. I said, Carol, this guy's calling me, tells my finalist for the Hall of Fame. She says out loud, well, it's about time. 
But, you know, in our family, we never talked about it. I, we never talked about me in the Hall of Fame. I never put myself in that category. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very humbled that other people think I belong there. Done a lot in this game of football at all levels. When people talk about Dick Vermeil, when it's all said and done, what do you want to be remembered for? Well, the guy that uh, cared, created a great atmosphere for his kids to work in, uh, developed a tremendous work ethic, was always sincere, didn't BS the troops, and showed people how they could win sometimes when maybe they weren't even good enough physically. They got it done anyway through their combined efforts of an entire team. And, uh, you know, I just I think it all stems with people knowing you really care. Dick Vermeil, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time. A lot of fun. Uh, congratulations once again on the Hall of Fame. Special, special time. And what we do at the end of the podcast is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy. Booner, you know that sound, don't you? Wow, Dan, it's been a while, but I believe if, if uh, my mind is accurate, it's mailbag time. We haven't done it in a while. We have not, and this is actually just a question for me to you because we are still under a lockout, and it looks like some things are starting to slip through the cracks of what's being agreed to, and we got three of them. One would be they are enlarging bases, two, a pitching clock, and <laughs> no shifts. Yeah, the important things, right, Dan? We, we're in a lockout. We're talking about the size. I was going to uh, say, uh, size of bases is so important. <laughs> so important. Give me your so, give me your uh, your reaction. Uh, pitch clock. Okay, I, I've never understood this. You know, f- the first thing is with this across the board, all sports now uh, becoming pretty pricey to take your your family uh, to a game. So I hear uh, you know a lot of complaining about that, but at the same time we're worried about getting the game over as fast as we can. So I, I'm just thinking, you know, if I'm taking my family to game and it's whatever it is, whatever that number is, I'm thinking if that game's four hours, great. I get, I get more for my buck. So I don't, I've never understood that everybody wants the game to be over so fast. You know, some of the greatest games go three hours and 50 minutes and, and it's exciting. It's like a movie, Dan, you ever go to a movie, a three hour movie. And if it sucks, it sucks, and you probably left halfway. <laughs> if it's a really good movie, you probably don't even realize it was three hours. I, I never understood that, but whatever. The bases being enlarged, uh, don't understand that at all. They're saying it cuts down on injuries. I don't know where that data comes from. All I know is that I'm a little bit closer to first base, and when I'm at first base, I'm a little bit closer to second base, so that's advantage runner, offensive player. So I guess as a player, I'd be in, I'd be in favor of that. Uh and then you talk about the shift. Um, I'm not a believer in the shift, a big believer. Uh, this is very data-based, and I don't particularly like the shift. That being said, I think as a team, you should be able to defense any any way you, you feel that you want to defense. So I don't think you should say, oh, I can't shift. Why? You know, your defense, there's nine players on the field. I think you can put them wherever you want to put them. You know, I don't think at the it, I don't think at the end of a 162 game schedule, when you pencil it out, I think it's a wash if you just play it straight up and just use, use your instincts as a defender on who's taking into account the pitch, who's pitching, location and defense that way. I, I don't think you're going to see a big difference, but it's going to be interesting to me because for the first time in a lot of years, 
uh, I see a huge discrepancy between the great hitters of the game and and the pit the, the hitters that finish at the bottom of the totem pole as far as average, you know, statistically. You're seeing a lot of guys hitting 195, 197, 201. And you still have the great players that are hitting 320, 330. But there's a huge discrepancy these days. What I'm hearing a lot is, oh, these shifts, the shifts are much harder. I'm real interested after playing this season with no shift if those numbers bear out. Stay tuned. We'll see. But I, I don't think I don't think getting rid of the shift is is something that legally you shouldn't be able to do as a team. But they're going to do what they want to do. Uh, I don't see how any three of those add any less or more excitement to the game. I know from being a media person and somebody who's covered baseball, there is something to be said about pitchers who can pitch fast and quickly. I remember when I used to cover the White Sox and Mark Burley used to pretty much throw a game and the game would be done in an hour and a half. And then I've been in games where play pitchers have, where managers have pretty much gotten every pitcher out there at once and it wasn't supposed to be that long of a game, but here we are five hours later. So... A clock to me sounds like a, a, a better thing. Just kind of speed up those pitchers because you get well, those Dan, foul balls, uh, uh, you get me, those you get those parts that just keep extending and extending, and you're like, all right, I got it. Four hours. It's a six inning. Let's roll. Well, let me let me play devil's advocate. You're you're a 38 year old veteran Hall of Fame pitcher. You've been doing it one way your whole life, and all of a sudden they tell you you're on a pitch clock, so you got to change your ways. Is that right? Well, for one of the best one of the best pitchers in the world to have to change how he's been doing it for 20 years like you to, to appease a clock. What if I told you, Dan, in doing your job today, you have to do it completely different than you're used to doing it behind the mic. I mean, pick anything, pick pick any occupation, take the best in the world at, at what they do and tell them, no, I know you've been doing it this way and you've been preparing this way. But because for time's sake, you need to prepare at a different at a different pace. Uh, let me let me give you this. Uh, Brad Pitt, since we talked about him earlier uh, with Dick Vermeil, um, pick any actor for that matter. You have to have this scene shot in a certain amount of time. Well, that's not how I prepared. Do you want a great product or do you want me to get it over with? See, see where I'm headed with well, this? Well, I think the answer is this, and I, I've heard this analogy before, and when you compare other things to sports, you can't do it. You can't, you can't call a lawyer or a doctor or a radio person the same as athletes. Nobody's paying to hear me talk. Well, except for the business, for the people that are paying me, but there's not an audience coming to see me. You guys are athletes. Yes. It's a business more than anything else. And it's entertainment. So now that we have things like people with very short mind spans and attention spans and they're on their phones and things of that nature. Unfortunately, baseball is the one game where time doesn't exist. So I think in order well, to keep but, people but like I, coming to that, that is and, that unfortunately or fortunately? Well, that's I mean, why with, I think rating, it makes baseball. We well, have no clock. You don't know what's going to happen. I agree, but the ratings. But when ratings start to dip a little bit, and people start to less and less, people start watching the World Series. I think they're saying to themselves, "All right, what can we do?" And these pitchers are looking and looking. They're looking to their sides, and they throw it to the first baseman. And as a casual fan or people that I mean, they're trying to get casual fans back. They're obviously the diehards are going to be there no matter what they do, no matter what they do, and they're going to be. 
angry when any rule is changed. But they want that casual fan. They want those people that somewhat watch football on Sundays just to watch football. They want those people coming back. So, I mean, I, I get it. I, I don't think it's, I mean, for this sport where, like you said, the diehards and people that are doing it one way, it's it's still appreciated by them. But I think they're just trying to attract them more. But I agree with you. And if this is what's coming out of the uh, the talks and not muddy, I think it's kind of a very mood part mood point of this part. Yeah, it's uh, you know I've I've got my own ideas on how you could make the game better, and it goes back to to ba- fundamental baseball that we've done. You know, I, I think fans get a little bit tired of the home run, the strikeout, uh, the station to station baseball. You know, guys today, and I'm not saying everybody, the players today, by the way, are, are from a physicality standpoint, are as good as they've ever been in the history of the game. But I think a lot of fans get caught up with the I'm tired of the strikeout. I'm tired of the just the strikeout home run. I, I love, you know, the Ricky Henderson days, the Vince Coleman days of, of stealing bases, creating runs, uh, running, going first to third, not station to station. I think the diehard fans and, and the fans, the middle age fans that have been around a long time, they like to see a little bit of the past baseball, the classic baseball being played. And we've gone to kind of one way. I don't know. Time will tell history. History will judge each and every generation. You know, that's why I'm not I really don't get on the current generation, of course, for me. And what I went through, I do things a little bit differently than the guys today. But it's 2022. It's not my game. It's their game. Well, history will judge them like history will judge my generation, like history will judge the generation. Your generation is getting some good judgment right now for no reason at all. But the question I have for you is this. What's the one rule you would like to see in there? What's a change if they were to change it right now? What do you think needs to be improved? You, well, I, I think you need. I think you need. You know, they're messing around with the with the fourteen teams in the playoffs. Uh, I think that's what makes baseball stand apart too. We play one hundred and sixty two games, and to automatically just say fourteen teams, half the league goes to the postseason. Why play one hundred and sixty two games? You're just like the other sports. I love the excitement of more teams being involved in the pennant race with the wild card. But fourteen teams—that's too much for me. Uh, I wouldn't change any of the rules. As a matter of fact, I would reverse some rules they put in years ago. You can't slide. You have to slide straight into the bag at second base. That's completely taken middle infield and great double play combinations. It's, it's completely taken them out of the mix. Anybody can turn it, turn a double play in 2022 as a second baseman. That's where I earned my stripes. I could turn that tough double play when somebody is trying to uh, throw me in the left field. If I could turn that big double play, that set me apart. Anybody can turn a double play. Now I can get any third baseman to come over and play second base. As long as you just have to slide straight in, anybody can make that pivot. I think it's cheapened uh, the middle infield play. I think it's cheapened shortstops with the shift. You know, now a true shortstop doesn't have to be as great as he always had to be. He's the best defender on the field. For me, I wouldn't change anything. I, I think the game has been great for so long because of the the rules the way they are. And I think if anything in this modern day generation and with this current commissioner, he wants so much change. They're looking for that right combo to get fans and, and, the, and the viewership up. But I think you're just going, you're barking up the wrong tree. And I think you're making silly changes of things in the game that don't have to be changed. Just my opinion. My opinion is, is that instead of extra innings, they just get the best players who have the best Yo Mama jokes and go for it. Whoever's got yeah, the funniest well, that, ones. That, that might be an option, Dan. 
<laughs> well, that's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I am the technical producer. I am the producer as well as the voice of the Boone Podcast. EP executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital gets handled by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. He is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29 My name is Dan Levy. You can find me base on air, B-A-S-S on air. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We'll see you guys soon.